In this episode of the Inspirational Insights Podcast, we are talking about organizational network analysis, ONA for short, which reveals the networks that run organizations and provide really great insight into what's going on in the relationships, emerging a strategy and or decisions to become more adaptive as a company. My guest is Michael Arena, the VP of Talent Development for Amazon Web Services. Michael delivered a keynote to the ONA Summit, which was provided for free to a global audience by orgmapper.org, Andrash Vishak, and the incredible team behind the Orgmapper tool. Welcome to the Inspirational Insights, Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host as a professional facilitator in one of my other roles. This is stuff I used to see all the time, but couldn't really articulate it because it sounded too woo-woo. Now we have the tools. To use the tool, you have to have a level of personal mastery. Michael is going to explain to us just what the journey was with ONA and understanding these networks, what it means to talent development, to strategy, and to leadership. Michael, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. You're the author of Adaptive Space. Uh, How did you come to appreciate the importance of adaptive spaces and what attracted you in the first place to organizational network analysis for insights? I I kind of backed into network analysis. It wasn't like it it emerged for me. It wasn't something that I leaned in and said, hey, I want to go learn this stuff. Uh, And it really did happen through adaptive space. I was interested, I I would say for about a decade of my career, going way back to my time at Bank of America, I was interested in one question. And I played around with a handful of academics who were also interested in this question, which is why are some companies and institutions, you know, adaptive and how do they continually adapt, respond to an external environment that's incredibly complex, disrupt themselves and reinvent themselves. We could talk about many of those companies as opposed to those companies that don't. And there are more in that category that don't and are not able to adapt themselves. I was just really interested in this question. So started playing around with a handful of researchers we did some academic research, which is referenced you know, in the book. And, and that research basically led us down a path. We, we thought we were looking for a new type of leadership. That is the question that we really started to play with at first. What kind of leadership does it take to create these adaptive, responsive organizations? What we ended up discovering very early on was it has as much to do with the network of how these organizations operate as anything else. Two really quick anecdotes about it. First thing we started hearing whenever we started looking for ideas in these organizations that were more adaptive was they were using code language for networks. I now know it as networks. Hey, we were socializing the idea or, hey, we were mining for new ideas or, hey, we were pulling together the innovators so that we could play together and incubate new ideas. We were hearing all this informal language and it was really interesting to us because It was different in one community, the entrepreneurial community in these orgs versus the others. The real breakthrough for us was we were analyzing one particular company, which was a medical device company, and we just started to play around with their networks aimed with some of this early learnings and early insights, started mapping out some of their networks. What we found was there was a very rich innovation pocket inside this organization. 
but they ended up having a commercial hit rate of zero across three years. A group of about 35 really smart, you know, PhD design thinking researchers had some brilliant prototypes and ideas, but they could not get these ideas adopted by the organization. Like every company, when you're not getting benefits from an investment, they basically shut it down. Just turned out that these people were really smart, so they diffused them. They basically redeployed them as opposed to dismissing them. All of a sudden, in the next year, ideas, these very same ideas started popping all over the place. I think they ended up having three commercial hits the very next year, and we happened to have all the network mapping of it. And What we found out, what we discovered was the only thing that really changed was these same people were working on the same ideas but they were diffused in different pockets in the organization, which meant that they could influence differently. And that was the epiphany for us. That was the breakthrough to say, wow, this network phenomenon is more than just interesting. It's the power uh, behind adaptivity and how do you continue to remain adaptive in organizations. So I drifted into it. Yeah, very nice drift, I must say. I mean, it's funny. I, I can remember in 2007, I was the knowledge and innovation part of the Society for Organizational Learning and listening to Hewlett Packard and, and uh, uh, Murray Allen. They did it the long way where you talk to people and trace the networks that way. But it, they were finding this something similar in the sense that if you want to get a really big goal accomplished, mm-hmm. it's in the network. It's not in the hierarchy ever. Really interesting that this is what you learned. Tell us more about what you've learned about these networks and and particularly with respect to the intersection with the networks and authority, because this is always a little zone of tension and curiosity. I'll go back to adaptive space to answer this question for a moment. One of the things that we also noticed was leaders still matter. One of the things we discovered was bottom-up emergence from the network. If a leader was willing to provide the degree of freedom necessary for these interactions to naturally emerge. And there are things, certainly things you can do to induce certain sets of connections. That's important. But at some point in time, you got to get these ideas resourced. At some point in time, you've got to get these ideas formalized into what we ended up calling the operational system. And that operational system still matters. That's the easiest way to scale It's the easiest way to get ideas brought out into the world fast with speed. And leaders in the formal organization help to fund that. In the early days, that structure actually can stifle idea generation and idea incubation and development. But in the later days, it's essential for it. I've met many entrepreneurs in my career who absolutely hate, I'll call it hierarchy, bureaucracy, structure, whatever language you want to describe around that. But the reality is it's necessary for them. It's this sort of love-hate relationship. And whenever you can realize that the tension between those two things, an entrepreneurial pocket or system and an operating system that formalizes ideas and can help quickly scale them, the tension between those two things is really the interface of adaptive space. And it's all about networks. At some point, these things are formalized and That's where more formal structures matter. You need a marketing budget. You need somebody to finance this thing. You need need customers to go test this with and salespeople to partner with. And that all matters later. But if you do that stuff too early in the process, you end up prematurely stifling the, the natural idea generation process. What are the connections that you found between 
understanding these informal, these influencers, there's a bunch of names for them. Every organization has got its own set of vocabulary around it. But what are you finding is the relationship between that and talent development and, and just developing capacity internally and adapting the culture as a whole? Yeah. Yeah. A, cu- a couple of things come to mind as you ask that question. The first one is you know, the talent management space. I'm an engineer. I love to think about the engineering side of organizations, but but I've been in you know the talent space for really the better part of the last decade and a half. A lot of us talk about human capital. The best way I can describe it is human capital is kind of like that summarization of all your experiences, your competencies and abilities, uh, and your skills that have emerged through practice and or knowledge of, of studying and analyzing things. We, we all know what human capital is. We, we look at it, people in my space, you know, hire for human capital, they develop human capital, and that's absolutely essential to organizational success, but insufficient. The other ingredient is what we all call social capital. So if human capital is what you know, social capital is how well positioned you are to leverage what you know and or leverage what other people know. What we know is that the smartest people in the world are not always the most productive. The smartest people in the world maybe even get themselves marginalized because they have to be the smartest person in the room. And what they know is not not fully leveraged. It's nothing but latent potential. What I know is if the combination of having really smart people, really capable people, combined with people who can engage in the network and have the right social capital and or right social position in the network, have a disproportionate impact on outcomes, both at the individual level and the organizational level. I'll give you just a couple of real quick stats off the top of my head. I think it was CEB that did a study probably over five years ago, where they looked at a company that invests in human capital practices, you know, could increase revenue by maybe five to six percent. But a company that invests in both human capital and social capital simultaneously gets a multiplying effect of almost two X of that because they're positioning these people to leverage what they fully know. At the individual level, it pays as well. Ron Burt, who I've learned a ton from, who is a sociologist up at University of Chicago, did some pioneering studies that says, in essence, at the individual level, if you have great social capital, you could outperform other people in the control group by 35%. Your chances of being promoted, I think, were 42% greater. And the likelihood of you staying inside the organization was like 40% greater. So social capital pays, literally and figuratively, for organizations. As a talent person, that matters to me. I, I not only want the smartest, best people into an organization, I want to bring the best out of them. And the best way to do that is to start thinking about not just who they are and what they know, but how they can you know, create network pool, how they can create different network configurations for different outcomes. Two things are coming up. One is the value of diversity. The reason why one group of like thinkers doesn't work is because they're like thinkers. They need to be dispersed throughout the organization so that they can mix it up with everybody else and you get the best of both worlds. And, and the second part of it is that the data you're working with mm-hmm. needs heart in yeah. order to work with it and interpret it and, and respect it properly. Yes. I think both of those are so true. I'm a little bit of a data geek, so it's easy to get fascinated by the data and it's easy to look at the stats and map out networks. And I've mapped out all kinds of networks, hundreds and hundreds, thousands probably at this stage, networks to to look at, you know, network statistics and all that sort of stuff. 
But at the end of the day, you know, we're social beings. We are human beings that operate in a social manner. And I, I believe us to be social beings. And there are all kinds of reasons why that is. So you got to think if you're a social being, it's not just enough to measure where somebody is, how they show up in that network matters a lot. So you can't engineer that. That's a human characteristic. And it's super important. The basic element in a network is a dyadic relationship. It's not the people, but it's that interaction between the people. Like we're having one right now. I can already tell you how I'll walk away, but we will both walk away from this interaction with a perspective of one another. And that perspective will really play back as to what our next interaction looks like. And that's the part that you just, you, you just can't engineer that, right? And, and then you do that a thousand times over with every interaction. Those little micro interactions matter disproportionately in an organization. So that's the first thing about, hey, you can't, you can't over-engineer this. You've got to think about you know, how individuals show up and what chemistry looks like and all those sorts of things. And energy, energy is super contagious, positive energy is super contagious. A very good friend of mine, Wayne Baker, has been studying energy in the network. And one of the things he said is that those organizations that positively disrupt themselves or adapt have three times as many energizers as de-energizers inside their organizations. That all matters a whole lot. The other part is diversity. This is a really interesting nuance of networks. It's absolutely true that if you work in a homogenous environment, you will act, think alike, and interpret the same thing, the same meaning from some experience. If you're trying to create and invent and adapt, you better disrupt that. And you better introduce more diversity into the core of the organization, which matters. Diversity on the edges of the network is useless. You got to have it in the center where you can really benefit from different people's knowledge. That's really important for discovery, development, and diffusion of ideas. That diversity is especially important for discovery and especially important for diffusion. In your ONA keynote, you talked about bridging and bonding. I want to shift from the high-level conversation of networks and dive right into what's the quality of the relationships that you're seeing in these networks and why is that important? We've also talked about outliers too, so you can, those ones on the fringes, bring those in if you can too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I think of social capital, there are two primary types of social capital that matter to organizations and, and it's bridging and bonding. Bonding is the easiest to understand. It's those redundant connections you have within a team where just about everybody knows one another a little bit of that homogenous mindset, and I'm not talking about diversity in the broad sense, but it's how a team interacts. Everyone knows each other, everyone interacts, and there's a lot of redundancy in that. Bonding social capital is really good for moving fast. Just think of it. If you're working with three or four people that you know really well, theory says you can move 10x faster in small, what we call two pizza teams here at Amazon. You can work 10x faster because everybody knows everybody. You don't have to slow down to bring people up to speed. You've got this sort of synchronization benefit that really enables speed. And that's bonding social capital. Bridging social capital gets back to how do you continually be more and more diverse? Bridging social capital is much more about how do you connect team to team or organization to organization or function to function? And there are a handful of people inside of organizations, usually a smaller number, 
that bridge out across the organization. And they're really important for discovering new ideas. They're really important for uh, synchronizing you know, ideas from a bunch of different places and, and building the, the you know, startup launch plan on the back end. These two things together are what helps an organization to be adaptive. Too much bridging and you don't have enough uh, speed, too much development and speed, and you don't have enough coordination and synchronization outside. So the combination of these two types of social capital are incredibly important to an organization and ensuring that an organization remains adaptive. I love that explanation because I can find myself in it. I can listen to those two and go, I'm that. <laughs> yeah, I know that's the role I play. I'm sure anyone listening to this on reflection would also be able to identify exactly where they fit. Which of the two is more fragile and why? Ah, definitely bridging, definitely bridging. And you can think of it this way. A bridging connection, first of all, it it simply means that you're not interacting. The frequency, the intentionality of you interacting with people in other groups, it just doesn't happen in a um, natural manner. Your team, and I'm using a team as a proxy in this case, your team is someone that you tend to interact with on a day-to-day basis. Ron Birch work says that the fragility of bridging connections within the first year of the 10 new bridging connections you might form nine of those are likely to decay within the first year. If you think about that, we all go to conferences, we all meet people, we all create new LinkedIn connections. And with the highest of intent, we have conversations with other people from other companies. And with the highest of intent, we want to stay connected. I can't wait to stay connected with you after this podcast call. Hopefully we will and we'll be intentional about that. But the reality is oftentimes daily stuff gets in the way And these are the relationships that are most easily uh, decayed or they will erode than the day-to-day team interactions. And and by the way, that is exactly what we saw in the work environment whenever organizations went to virtual work, is that the first thing that started to happen at about a 30% decay rate was we started losing our bridge connections across teams and across functions, even within organizations that dropped off precipitously in, in literally a matter of weeks in most organizations. That's interesting to me because I do everything virtually. The difference is that when you look at the bridging connections that I have, it's very driven by purpose. It's, it's very much tied to what are we trying to accomplish together? The redirection of, of those connections is based on what, about, what are we trying to achieve together? So I don't know whether that plays into the dynamic that you witness in these maps or not. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it completely plays in it. Oftentimes I make the statement that I just made and the response is, so we can't work remotely, correct? So we're going to lose these bridge connections if we continue to work in a remote environment. What I would say is, well, that depends because there are actually some cases where, and I could share multiple studies, uh, multiple incidences where there were actually groups that bridging connections increased. It was against the norm. And what I'll say is left to chance bridging connections will erode in a virtual environment. But with great intentionality, I actually saw the opposite happen. I actually saw some groups that created, you know, structures and ongoing rigor and routines very intentionally and actually bridging connections improved in those cases, but it takes more effort. The moral of the story is it's going to take a lot more intentionality and a lot more effort. And that effort's even greater when that connection's forged virtually. One of the things we know about a multitude of studies that were conducted, one at University of Michigan, 
pre-COVID, pre-virtual work, is that you can establish social capital virtually face-to-face. In a face-to-face world, it takes somewhere between maybe five to six interactions before we begin to build up trust or not in our relationship. And you begin to know, hey, this is a person who I'm going to stay connected to. In a virtual context, it happens, but it's at about a 3x number. It takes somewhere like 15 to 18 interactions for you to get to that same point. What it means is much more repetition and much more intentionality, which also means that you need to not over-collaborate. Another good friend, Rob Krauss, just wrote a book called Collaborative Overload. What Rob talks about is we're collaborating too much and with too little intention. What it means is if it takes three times the number of interactions for you to build trust and social capital up in a virtual context, that means you got to decrease the number of people you're investing in probably by you know a third or take it to a third just so you're not killing yourself. There's only so much time in a day and you got to be much more um, deliberate about how you leverage, engage and really build your network. My own experience is that, that when you've got a group like that, it's shared intentionality. Here's what we're all trying to achieve together. By nature, that's intense. There's a a level up of intensity. There's also a level up of responsibility and commitment. So you can only manage a certain number of those before you're going to sizzle out. You just have to be extremely selective with where you put your energy. And if you don't, then you just just get spread too thinly and nothing really happens. Absolutely. I couldn't agree anymore with everything you just said. (laughs) Thanks. All right, let's go to adaptive hybrids. You mentioned that in the summit. And all of this leads up to that question, listening to to the different conversations uh, from the International Facilities Management Association, from the mosh pit and the conversations around return to work. And all of these questions ask us, what is an adaptive hybrid workplace? in, In one instance, the discussion was around it being the disruptor. My way of thinking is it's the innovator. This is the place where we get to really create adaptability. What do you mean by adaptive hybrid? First off, I am so fired up about where we are in the history of work. I think we will look back now in the last 20 months. I'm learning like everybody else. So I'm always really, really careful to to state what I know and what I can ground in theory and evidence versus what's an opinion. I'll have some opinions here, but I've got a lot of research as well that I've drawn either a hypothesis or an opinion off of. But the reality is, I think we probably have fast forwarded the future of work a decade forward in the last 18 to 20 months. This genie doesn't go back in the bottle. People love the flexibility of working from home and that flexibility is not going to go away because people will vote and, and they will vote in a way that will be meaningful to them. We can't go back to the way things were. It just isn't going to happen. Now, that said, there's a very strong argument as to why where we were could be beneficial to things like innovation, serendipity, why it could be super important for things like influence. Sandy Pentland, who I studied under up at MIT Media Lab, would say that 80% of our ability to influence somebody is eyeball to eyeball. And he's got great research to demonstrate this. If that's the case, like how do you influence in a virtual channel? And the answer is something that's a little more adaptive than just the the straight hybrid. You know, the way most companies are talking about a hybrid model is that some people will come back and some people will stay virtual. That's a hybrid. Or maybe we'll even get a little more um, declarative than that. 
and we'll say everybody needs to come back two to three days a week. And, and I believe that there's some good logic behind that. I don't think it's um, precise enough in how human beings really need to interact and who they need to interact with. Let me just put it in context before I pivot to the adaptive hybrid. If you come back into the office, so there are benefits to being face-to-face. I think we would all agree with that. But if you come back into the office and your teammates aren't there because you're there on two days of the week and they're there on the other two days or two different days or three different days of the week, or you're there and you want to build a bridging connection with another team, but the other team is not there on that particular day or those days, now all of a sudden you don't get the benefit of the way networks naturally emerge. So this concept of an adaptive hybrid is really... How do we think about the, the stage of work that a team is doing at any given point in time? So rather than artificially saying, come back in the office two, three days a week, what if we say there are some times when a team needs to be in discovery mode, there are some times when a team's in build mode and execution mode, and there are some times where a team is trying to scale ideas and influence other teams. Each of those three different scenarios require different network configurations. So the adaptive hybrid is, well, what if you, when you're in build mode and you need to be working with your team, you choose some sort of recipe for when you're going to be together. We know that that helps to improve the depth of work. We know that wicked problems that are hard to solve can be collaborated on when three people are joined at a whiteboard and you can really go deep on a problem. That's one adaptive work pattern. But we also know that like at the very front end of a new product or a new project of some sort, interacting with a diverse group of people from a multitude of different teams to get new ideas and discover new things that you don't know requires bridging connections. And that might not require you to be there with your own team, but it may require you to be in a summit of some sort with 10 different teams, or it might require you to come in and set up meetings with three or four different teams on it. What we're saying about an adaptive hybrid is first start with what am I trying to solve for? What is the problem? What is my intentionality? Going back to the word we were talking about a few moments ago, then think about when do I come into the office and with whom, and then when can I stay virtual? I I describe it as heads up and heads down work. Heads down work is actually super productive in a virtual world. If you're a software development engineer, if you're an author and you're writing, heads down work is deep concentration work where you can do what you already know and you're incredibly more productive by doing that in this like virtual world if you've removed distractions and can stay focused and don't have the shifting costs associated with the three meetings you need to go to. But that's a hindrance if you're in heads up zone where you need to look out and see what can I discover, or you need to look out and say, who are the teams that I need to influence around my new idea? That requires a different motion, different set of motions. Thinking about that holistically is what we're now calling the adaptive hybrid, which means start with what's my intention. Form always follows function for those of us who've been in the org design world. Start with what is the function. And then start to think about what is the social form necessary to best accomplish that function most readily. What I appreciate is that we've shifted from talking about the logistics, the decision-making focus being on, well, how do we make this happen? The mechanics, the logistics, to actually, why are we doing this? 
what is the guiding purpose for this, these kinds of conversations in person or not in person. You've described a holistic perspective and a heads down perspective. Mm -hmm. That requires a certain skill set. So that means you've got to find or develop capacity internally to be able to make those kinds of shifts or pick the people that naturally are visionary, naturally see the system. How do you see that evolving inside of a culture and organization culture? You know, this is a a really interesting dilemma because you're absolutely right. I could not agree anymore with everything you just said. I'm willing to guess what your bias is between bonding and bridging. You probably can guess what mine is by the nature of this conversation. We all have these biases and, and it's hard to shift towards the other bias or multiple other biases. Where I've been focused, and I'm writing an article on this right now, is shifting the question. Ask different questions. I already share one, like, what are we trying to accomplish? That's an intentionality question. Are we concerned about innovation right now? That requires a different mindset. Are we trying to increase productivity? That requires a different configuration and you know, challenges people to think differently. Something I haven't even talked about, which is actually my greatest concern about this you know, hybrid working model is what are we trying to do with culture? How are we trying to learn? So what I've been working on a lot with leaders, and I think this is the role of leaders in this new environment, doesn't have to be leaders, but this is where I've started, is challenging leaders to ask different questions of themselves and their teams. And don't presume that we can stay static in the way that we work because our intentionality is shifting all the time. So ask different questions. And one of the ways that you get people who are predisposed to being heads down and saying, like, I love working at home because I can get 10x more done this way, is to shift their thinking by asking a new question. That's great. But when is it that you need to be learning something new? When is it that you hit up against some sort of boundary or some sort of blockage in trying to solve your problem, and you need to come back together and go 10x deeper into solving a wicked problem, which you can't do on your own, And I think great leaders are able to ask different questions to challenge people to think about different work configurations. The other thought that comes to mind is that this work requires being able to recognize that what's on the surface is just the symptom of what's going on underneath the surface. One word you've used a couple of times is depth, and it gives me great joy to hear that word, I must say, because there's been too much superficial level decision making where somebody sees something, jumps to conclusions, acts on it. And it takes it down a path of difficult return. 100%. Knee-jerk reactions aren't going to... And this is where I'm really careful about my opinions because none of us really know what the future work's going to look like, right? I, I can I share some evidence. I can share some data. I, I can share some great early successes. I love human beings because we are super creative and give us a circumstance and we figure stuff out. There are so many anecdotes of stories of different companies that have done some incredible things to figure things out in this new working challenged environment. But at the end of the day, none of us have done that at scale across time. That's where I think we got to keep challenging ourselves. The knee-jerk reactions are what scare me the most. Um, We're a company that, you know, is predicated on relationships and we must come back to the office. Or we're a company where we can work completely remotely because we don't need to depend on each other beyond everybody doing what's necessary. for Neither of those two scenarios are accurate. Many people want both of those two scenarios. And I think we got to stop the knee-jerk reactions. We got to do a lot of different things. We got to look at the data. 
We got to listen to our employees, like what do our employees really need and want? And we got to listen to what the business needs. And it's the combination of those multiple things that will come together and give us a, a, a much better, higher order solution. Uh, that's why I'm so jazzed up, because I can see that solution beginning to emerge in front of us. Tell us a story about a company and how network has changed culture. Just any kind of anecdote you have that would put yeah. some real narrative to this. What I know about culture is that it happens face-to-face. Culture is you know, one of the most fascinating things to study on a network. We just had a paper published on this topic in Salon. One of the things I love about studying networks and culture is culture emerges. It's hardly ever top down. Culture happens through the one-on-one interactions we have every day. It's either reinforced or dissuaded based on the interactions that you have every single day. That's what I've seen even in these times. Certain behaviors cascade better and translate better across the network face-to-face as opposed to others. More complex tacit learnings are better face-to-face. You can learn more by modeling certain behaviors that are very nuanced and very difficult. That requires face-to-face interactions, vice versa. You know, if it's simple and it's pretty easily understood, you can do that very well through Zoom interactions. To multiple stories, one team in particular really brokers these super complex business deals, very high order sets of, you know, multiple solutions coming together and they bridge these different um, solution sets into a portfolio of solutions for customers' problems and complex customers' problems. That group had to figure this out like immediately when they went virtual. That group had to figure out how am I going to stay connected with all these other teams? And what they did was they actually created a whole separate group that was responsible for continuing to nurture the relationships necessary for these deals before these deals were ever made. What they did was they, in essence, carved out 60 people. I'd love to say they were intentional and they read my research and they looked at all these studies. I don't think that was it at all. They just figured it out. They said, well, we're going to take 60 people. We're going to centralize them. They're going to be the deal makers and they're going to continue to cultivate the relationships they need before we need them. So that whenever one of these deals emerges and you got days to construct something, a portfolio of solutions, they will be able to do that quickly because the relationships already exist. They actually increased bridging mechanisms as a result of that. That's an illustration or a story of a group that actually got better during these times because they got more deliberate and intentional. The other thought is that when we're talking about culture, And we're talking about network analysis. The whole uh, focus shifts from, in my world at least, from leaders who are relying on their insecurities (laughs) and or authorities, depending on how entangled those two are and what the status of that is, to leaders that are more, much more centered in trust, much more centered in learning. Learning is a really prime directive, if I put it in Star Trek terms. If we look at adaptive hybrids and we look at companies that say yes or dip their toe in and go, no, I like the old stuff better. Which ones do you think are going to emerge as forces in the market? Mm. And what kind of leadership will stand at the top? What will the role of these networks have in this? Yeah, two really great questions. There's something to be said that organizations that can oscillate back and forth between brokerage and closure or brokerage and bonding 
are more productive in the long haul. There's some good research that suggests that is really what adaptive space is predicated on. There's good academic research that says cultural lock-in is more dangerous than structural lock-in. The easiest demise of an organization is to become super insular at the team level and certainly at the organizational level and become locked in culturally to a set of beliefs and the world changes around it and it can't adjust. That is far more detrimental. We all like to talk about hierarchy and structure and bureaucracy. Those things are really potentially dangerous for sure, but cultural lock-in may even be more dangerous. This concept of oscillating back and forth so that you're constantly learning and constantly trying new things, but also being locked into small groups so you can execute and deliver really matters. So that's the broad question of why I think oscillation back and forth between these two in an organization is essential to innovation and adaptation. On the other side, what kind of leadership will form? It is certainly true that employees have figured out how to do some incredible things in some crazy chaotic times. In most cases, we've actually seen productivity improve, not everywhere. There's starting to be a little bit of a fatigue factor and drop off more recently. The thing that I probably am most optimistic about during this time is how we as human beings have figured stuff out. I'm amazed by that. Leaders in particular have really leaned into their teams in an incredible way. This is an opinion, so I need to say that. My hypothesis is that's going to have a long-term effect where I've heard the word empathy more than ever in the last year across a multitude of different companies. And what I know for a fact is that leaders have leaned into their teams and they have really almost flattened the organization. And I know I keep mentioning other people's research, but this is a really important piece. Ben Weber uh, from Humanize has been studying networks during this time. One of the things that he found is that the barriers for employee to leader, and it doesn't matter the number of layers in a given you know, function or group, have been radically reduced during this time frame. In other words, the organization has flattened out mostly because leaders are leaning in and looking and they're interested and caring and concerned about their employees. Absolutely, all that's true. But there's another effect which I'm concerned about. So the good news is I I don't think that empathy goes away. I think leaders have figured out more than ever, we're going to have to serve and take care of the employees' needs. But here's the byproduct of that. This is a little bit of Rob's collaborative overload. You can only invest in so many relationships on a day-to-day basis. So as leaders have turned inward and looked into their organization to enable and take care of their organization, which is an incredibly positive thing, the expense of that is they have lost connectivity at a three to four X level of the average citizen inside of organizations across the world. So they've lost their bridging capacity. That's really scary to me. We talked a little bit about the fragility of bridging connections earlier fragility has been far more intense at a 4x level rate for leaders during this time. One of my big concerns long-term is leaders need to be connected to other leaders. Leaders need to be connected horizontally across the organization. I describe it as the neighborhood effect. It used to be that we had some silos and certain leaders bridged across the silos. Hopefully you tried to build those connectivities. What's happening now is even within a silo, let's call it a function to be more real, there are breaking off or splintering of neighborhoods that are becoming more and more fragmented. That's concerning to me because there's a tax on leaders 
as they lean in to support their teams, we as organizational scientists need to think about how do we regenerate those bridge connections for leaders immediately, or we will fragment more and more as neighborhoods. Wow. The consciousness that goes with that, the awareness, the capacity to flex the perspective is at high level. That's my conclusion. It is. I couldn't agree anymore with that. But whenever you present them with the facts and the data and say, look at this, look at what's happened across these last 18 months. The first thing is it is a reality check. But the first response I have gotten every single time I've done this is, hmm, I, I don't know that I knew that per se, but that makes a ton of sense as I reflect back on it. I better think about how I'm going to regenerate those connections so that you know, we can continue to you know, be adaptive, which remember that was where the adaptive capacity comes from, be adaptive you know, for the long-term of my organization. Michael, thank you very much. How delightful it is to chat about this. I could go on for another hour easily, <laughs> but, but I think we've given enough to listeners, at least in this episode, to give food for thought on, on not just doing the snap judgment. We're not on hypnotic state anymore. We have to be attentive. We have to be paying attention. We have to be asking ourselves questions, asking our teams and organizations different questions. I think it's an extremely exciting time. Thank you very much for your generosity to show up today and just riff and have a good time. Yeah, yeah, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation tremendously. And with your level of curiosity, I'm pretty sure you're a broker. Thank you. I feel it's wonderful to have a new identity at this point. There we go. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. There is a couple of other episodes you can listen to on this podcast that develop a greater understanding of the power of these tools for understanding what's going on in your organization. The conversation with Maya Townsend and the episode with Andras Vishak from OrgMapper describes why I got intrigued because Andras's father was a physicist. It was his father's work studying the behavior of pigeons that really intrigued me because we can learn a lot from nature's natural design for efficiency and beyond sustainability on the long run, particularly with complex issues. Thank you for joining me. If you'd like to explore how to work with this tool in your organization, you can reach out to me or you can contact orgmapper.org. You'll also find case studies there that give you a greater insight into the application of and, and the value of thinking deeper. If you like this episode or the podcast as a whole, please give us a review on iTunes. Connect to me on LinkedIn at D-A-W-N-A-H Jones or reach out to me on Twitter, which is E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones and connect to me on LinkedIn. It's going to be an interesting year ahead.